Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and on 11925 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Forum on China-Africa Cooperation continues in Beijing and the DRC government rejects foreign funding for elections. In economics news, South Africa expected to dodge a recession and in sports news, Nigerian under-17 skipper fails MRI age test at the AFCON Championship. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Clashes have been raging on the outskirts of Libya's capital, Tripoli, trapping residents indoors and hampering rescue efforts. This as the United Nations calls for talks after more than a week of deadly violence. Fighting since last Monday between rival militia and the southern suburbs have killed at least 47 people and wounded 129 mostly civilians following a failed ceasefire on friday the un mission to libya invited the various libyan parties to talks for an urgent dialogue on the current security situation in tripoli the un backed government of national unity on sunday declared a state of emergency in tripoli and its surroundings Ugandan authorities have charged a fifth lawmaker with treason over his alleged role in an incident in which the president's motorcade was pelted with stones. Francis Zaki and ally of the pop star turned lawmaker Bobby Wine has also been charged with unlawful escape from custody on Monday. Zaki had been hospitalized with injuries allegedly sustained while in police custody was prevented last week from traveling to India for medical care. Police said he had a case to answer. 
Rwandans have voted in parliamentary elections that are expected to show up the power of President Paul Kagame's ruling party a year after he was re-elected with 98% of the vote. The Rwandan Patriotic Front, in power for 24 years, its allied parties and one critical opposition party, are vying for 53 of the 80 seats in parliament. The remaining 27 seats are reserved for women, youth and the disabled, and they are elected by special councils and national committees. U.S. President Donald Trump has warned Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad against launching an attack on the rebel stronghold of Idlib, saying that hundreds of thousands of people might die. Trump says Russia and Iran would be making what he calls a grave humanitarian mistake if they aided their ally in such an assault, the BBC's David Willis reports. The province of Idlib in northwestern Syria is the last major stronghold for rebels fighting the government of Bashar al-Assad. Hence, for the Syrian army and its allies on the ground, Russia and Iran, capturing Idlib has become a major priority and thousands of troops have already been deployed to the area with the aim of driving out the 30,000 or so rebel fighters who are thought to be holed up there. The United Nations has warned that an assault on Idlib could spark a humanitarian crisis the likes of which even Syria has yet to see. And President Trump is now backing that assessment. And finally, the acting director general of South Africa's government communication and information sister Pumla Williams says the country's former communications minister Faith Mutambi's attitude showed that she was allegedly working against the state and was determined to steal from government. Williams wrapped up a testimony at the Commission of Inquiry into state capture on Monday. She broke down as she relived several years of what she refers to as torture at the hands of a former boss. Asked if she thought Mutambi was strategically placed in her position to divert government's resources to benefit the Gupta family, Williams had this to say. I think the person who can respond to that is the president himself. What I do know is the damage that Minister Mtambi did, who was going all out to make sure that the systems that existed in GCIS and the structures that existed in GCIS were dismantled. Whether that was part of the plan, I have no idea. The fact that Mutambi continued and the president did nothing, she continued to wreak havoc in the department, the president was not interested, and what I would insist, the president knew what was happening. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo have called on Western countries to bring humanitarian assistance for the thousands of needy people instead of insisting on funding elections in that country. They wonder why the international community is excited about funding elections while the DRC government is ready to do so on its own. The UN mission in the country said it respects Congolese authorities' position, but it remains prepared as supporting elections in the DRC is part of MONUSCO's mandate. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. More than 463 billion US dollars is the amount of budget for the Democratic Republic of Congo's Independent National Electoral Commission to hold elections as expected here on December 23rd and to take the full electoral process up to the end. 
This is to be funded in full by the Congolese government for this country to keep its sovereignty since it remains independent and indeed authorities here have said a significant amount has already been given to the electoral commission for that. Gilbert Mwika is from the ruling coalition. Money is always deposited into the electoral commission's account and elections are on December 23rd. Let's trust our authorities. Congo will never remain a dependent country. We can't accept attitudes of different leaders looking at us with disdain. Authorities are then wondering why the international community is excited about funding elections while the government is ready to do so since the giving hand is always up on the receiving one. They then call on Western countries to bring humanitarian assistance to needy people instead of sticking on elections. Once more, Gilbert Mwika from the ruling coalition explains. Humanitarian aid is always without conditions, but election-related support is always with conditions while this is a sovereign domain and we can't accept. The attitude of different leaders is due to such interventions. The UN mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo says it respects the Congolese authorities' position, but it remains prepared as supporting elections here is part of its mandate. Florence Marshall is Monusco spokesperson. On one hand, we have the resolution 2409 that asks Monusco to be ready to provide technical assistance and logistical support to the Congolese authority, and namely to the CENI, in order to uh, facilitate the organization of the election schedule on the 23rd of December this year. On the other hand, we have the government stands that DRC does not request any kind of support, be financial or logistical, to organize the election. So things are very clear. On one hand, we need to be prepared because it's a request of the Security Council. It's part of our mandate. And as you know, being prepared for supporting the logistical part of the organization of election. The Democratic Republic of Congo's electoral process has previously benefited from the international community's support and especially from MONUSCO technical and logistical support both in 2006 and in 2011. The UN spokesperson believes that they need to just remain on standby since feeding the whole country in both technique and logistic is a huge task and they have to make sure elections are really held as expected. Once more, Florence Marshall explains. You know, DRC is a very big country and with a lot of logistical challenges to reach out to the most remote parts of the country. So it means that we need to be prepared. And uh, in terms of logistics, we cannot, if at the last minute they ask for our support, we cannot just like this in one day to uh, overnight be able to bring the support. So it's the reason why we are prepared. And because it's in our mandate, and our mandate, it's our roadmap. But on the other hand, the government does not want our support, and we have no problem at all with it. We respect the decision. On the contrary, if the Congolese can organize by themselves the election, then we will be the first to congratulate them. Meanwhile, the Independent National Electoral Commission has said things are moving well and electoral roles ready for publication this Monday.
Jean Noel Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Prominent Ugandan opposition member of parliament and musician Bobby Wine is in the United States where he is expected to undergo treatment after he was allegedly brutally beaten by the country's security forces and detained for several days. Here's James Shimangula with an update on the Ugandan musician that was finally freed from detention after local Ugandans and the international community held protests to push for his release. After allegedly undergoing torture at the hands of Ugandan security personnel following the stoning of President Yoweri Museveni's motorcade, Ugandan musician Bobby Wine is in the United States to get special medical treatment. Wine's attempt to be allowed to leave Uganda was thwarted by Ugandan immigration authorities. He made a strong plea to the international community that his life was in danger following alleged torture by security men in the northern Ugandan town of Gulu. Finally, the international communities cry that Bobby Wine be released by fruit. Now he is in the United States after the Kampala government allowed him to leave the country. Before I proceed with my story, let me play a shortcut on Bobby Wine's music the very music that has made him popular among the youth in Uganda, where he captured a parliamentary seat despite President Yoweri Museveni's spirited campaign for Wine's political challenger. Let us hear remarks made by Wine's brother, Eddie Yawe showering praises to the Almighty for enabling the musician to travel to the United States for special medical treatment. Definitely, first and foremost, we're so much thankful to God because we prayed and been praying and he has answered our prayers. We're so much thankful to all the people around the world, the Ugandans, the friends, the fans, the supporters, and the well-wishers that Chiagulanyi is just testing his freedom. We are not at the end of the road yet, but the struggle continues until when Uganda is totally free. That's what I can say for now, but we're so much thankful that we're at least testing success. Uh, we're still scared of where we are, definitely. If he's strong, he might not reveal it to you right now that he's strong, but from my face to his face, the man is strong, and definitely he's going to talk to the world about what happened to him in detail. Eddie Yahweh also briefly explains how he felt when he looked at the frail face of his brother, Bobby Wine. I was falling down and he cried so much because this whole part of the body is so much painful and it's, it's having a very funny body shape. So his head is in danger because it, there's a lot of, this is in shapes, it, funny shapes. Also his leg, this side is a little bit okay, but we cannot tell. Elias Lukwago, the mayor of the Ugandan capital Kampala, explains how he felt after he looked at the injuries inflicted on a musician Bobby Wine. His face was swollen, and when he tried to explain to us, he was talking with lots of difficulties. It was very, very difficult. They were not so sure, because when we asked, what are you going to do about him, look at the situation is deteriorating. What are you going to do about this? The doctor actually said they were, they were also in a panic situation. Those in panic, according to the mayor of Kampala, Elias Lukwago, were local doctors in Uganda who had attended to the musician. Nicholas Opio, Bobby Wine's lawyer, says 
The musician will foot his own medical bills in the United States. He will pay for his own bills in the medical facility in the U.S. We have not got any communication that anybody is going to pay his bills. But his life is more important than money. He has spared no coin to try and access the best medical care. That was Nicholas Opio, a Kampala lawyer representing musician Bobby Wine in a treason case that has been preferred against him by the Ugandan police. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ngatani, in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation has managed to dispel the colonial label some have been accusing the Chinese government of practicing on the continent. He was speaking at the start of a third forum in Beijing yesterday. Chinese President Xi Jinping has pledged more cooperation and committed 60 billion US dollars to help Africa achieve its development objectives. Debo Mokobo has more. It's the coming together of more than 50 African leaders on the Chinese soil and the meeting is graced by the world's chief diplomat, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. China seems to be well aware of the accusation that it is seeking to recolonize the African continent. Perhaps the reason why the Chinese president continues to stress that his cooperation with Africa has no strings attached to it. Founded in 2000, the China-Africa Forum is already producing massive results. And major infrastructure development projects by China in Africa bear testimony to this. President Cyril Ramaphosa says this has proved their detractors wrong. Since its launch in the year 2000, FOCAC has grown both in extent and scope in the manner that it operates and in the impact that it has on African countries. FOCAC refutes the view that a new colonialism is taking hold in Africa as our detractors would have us believe. We appreciate new funding to African countries to the value of $60 billion. Through this partnership, We are working together to advance growth and development on the African continent. The Chinese government has once again pledged another 60 billion U.S. dollars to help fund various projects on the continent, as President Xi Jinping explains. 
China will extend $60 billion of financing to Africa in the form of government assistance as well as investment and financing by financial institutions and companies. This will include this will include $15 billion of grants, interest-free loans, and concessional loans, $20 billion of credit lines, the setting up of a $10 billion special fund for development financing and a $5 billion special fund for financing imports from Africa. And the Continental Body welcomes the cooperation with the world's second biggest economy. Chairperson of the African Union and Rwandan President Paul Kagame has used the occasion to urge his African counterparts to scale up the Forum on China-Africa cooperation to benefit Africa's population. The relationship between Africa and China is based on equality, mutual respect, and a commitment to shared well-being. Today, the forum has grown into a powerful engine of cooperation. China's engagement in Africa has been deeply transformational, both internally and with respect to Africa's global position. That's why we now want to reinforce and scale up the forum in order to maximize the benefits. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged China and Africa to put ordinary people at the center of their cooperation. Stronger cooperation between China and Africa can lead to sustainable, environmentally friendly and resilient development in Africa that is inclusive, reaching first those people that are furthest behind. And we are ready to support the strengthening of governance and institutional capacities in African countries to ensure country ownership and leadership and fully respond to the needs and aspirations of Africa's people. A particular concern are education and job opportunities for young people and equality and empowerment for the continent, women and girls. South Africa will hand over the co-chairing of the forum to Senegal on Tuesday. I am Tebo Mokobo, Beijing in China. Acting Government Communication and Information System Head Pumla Williams has accused former South Africa's Communications Minister Faith Mutambi of initiating a reign of terror and destroying government communications between 2014 and 2017. Williams is the fifth witness to give her testimony at the State Capture Inquiry sitting in Parktown, Johannesburg. With the exception of a short period in 2014, she has been the government spokesperson and acting director general of GCIS since 2012 after Mzalele Mani left. Mbali Tetani reports. The emotional testimony, acting GCIS head Pumla Williams told Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo the torture in which she suffered under then Communications Minister Faith Mutambi. Williams told the commission the way in which Mutambi treated her brought back the pain she experienced under the apartheid government while she was an ANC activist. Chairperson, if you allow me to say what I want to say, I think if I, I, I you, you indulge yes. me, because I think at this point, uh, I was, I think Minister Mtambi, or rather this woman, uh, I'm, I'm really being sorry to, to say what I want to say, Mr. Mtambi, Minister Mtambi had ripped my scars of, of torture, completely, completely. I think when I was writing this letter, the effects of my torture were back. Chairperson, I was no longer sleeping. I had nightmares. I, I, I was reliving my situation. My facial twitches 
were back. I had panic attacks. I saw torture going through my, my body again. I never thought in this government people can do such things. I was tortured for weeks and Mutambi did the same thing to my body. Williams further told the commission that former minister Mutambi removed about 70% of her functions at GCIS, which included finance and procurement processes. She was cheating the state because basically I was being paid because she wanted that procurement at all costs. She wanted to steal at all costs. That removing of all those functions, it was, a, it was a ploy to remove the finance and procurement away from me. They knew that they have removed me from doing cabinet work. I was going to be a nuisance. And they decided that the procurement and the finances must be removed from this woman. And that's basically what they did. I had to contend with those scars back in my system. I couldn't say to anyone what I was going through. I had to be assisted by colleagues at work, Mr. Simakane and Zukiswa, who made it their problem that every morning they come and check on me. My sister had to move in in my house because at that point I was scared of going to bed because I thought the nightmares will come back. I started hearing those keys of my torture. Williams also detailed alleged irregularities that happened during the tenure of the former communications minister, saying she made GCIS completely dysfunctional and while people left their posts, she refused to fill the vacancies. Chairperson, if I may just say that the damage that was done by the minister Mtambi for a very long time, GCIS was called a Hollywood uh, place because a lot of people when they resigned, and I should indicate that one of the other things that Minister Mtambi did took over the powers of appointing uh, people. When the post becomes vacant, it has to be at her whims whether she fills the post or not. So from directors, we had a lot of directors that were vacant. We had a lot of chief directors that were vacant. All the DDGs that were there had left. And basically the institution was becoming completely dysfunctional. The acting GCIS head also told the commission that she applied for early retirement but later withdrew it. But chairperson, as I said, that the reason I withdrew my retirement mm-hmm. uh, I had to ask myself a question, how did I manage the torture and not to sell and ended up being sentenced to seven years? What is it? And I think, Chairperson, I came with one conclusion that the reason I couldn't be sell out is because I was so passionate with what I was struggling for. And I was also accepting the fact that these are not my friends, these are the poor that are coming to torture me. Uh, but in the case of, 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 of public service, I had to accept that this is not a minister, this is an enemy. That's what really helped me. I don't think that woman was interested in serving the people of South Africa. I don't think that woman was interested in preserving the resources of this country. And, and that's why I then said that I will be failing the people of South Africa if I allow, allow the thief 
to get away with it. Meanwhile, more implicated persons have now also filed to cross-examine witnesses. A.J. Gupta has filed an application to cross-examine witnesses, former ANC MP Feiki Mentor and former GCIS head Temba Maseko. Both Mentor and Maseko implicated A.J. Gupta in their testimonies last week. The former ANC MP told Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo that A.J. offered her a ministerial post of Public Enterprises Minister and informed her of an upcoming cabinet reshuffle in 2010. Maseko also told the commission that A.J. Gupta instructed him to redirect the communications budget to the New Age newspaper. A.J. Gupta's representative, Mike Hillens. Uh, Mr. A.J. Gupta has filed an application in terms of the rules of this commission to uh, cross-examine Ms. um, Mentor and Mr. Maseko. He has also filed an affidavit in respect of both those parties, setting out his version of the events and from which he clearly emerges the areas of dispute between the parties. At the same time, implicated Hawks officials Major General Zindlem Nonopi and Mandlam Dolo have also submitted applications to cross-examine Mentor and former Deputy Finance Minister Mzibisi Jonas, their legal representative Vincent Siwela. And I concur that I still represent both officers from the Hawks. I place it on record, uh, Chair, that uh, we also have the desire to cross-examine uh, both Ms. Feki Mento and the Honorable Mr. Jonas. The reason being the evidence they are chosen before the Honorable Commission has uh, detrimentally implicated both our clients. Others who have also submitted applications are former Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown, businessman Fana Shongwane, and former President Jacob Zuma's Chief of Staff, Lakela Kawunda. Justice Sondo then announced that he will formally hear all applications for cross-examination on Wednesday. Ambali Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The headlines, the highest court in the Democratic Republic of Congo bars opposition leader Jean-Pierre Bemba from running in the presidential election due in December. 
Clashes raging on the outskirts of Libya's capital Tripoli leave residents trapped indoors and hampering rescue efforts as the United Nations calls for talks after more than a week of deadly violence. And U.S. President Donald Trump warned Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad against launching an attack on the rebel stronghold of Idlib, saying hundreds of thousands of people might die. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A South African petrochemicals group, Sassol, says it has contingency plans in place for the strike arranged by Trade Union Solidarity over the exclusion of white employees from Sassol's new broad-based black economic empowerment share scheme. According to a statement issued by the Energy and Chemical Company on Monday, it received a notification of the strike which commenced yesterday. However, South Africa's ruling ANC said it was deeply concerned about the racist overtones of the strike, which it said sought to reverse the gains of the country's democracy. For more on the strike, we are now joined on the line by Chief Executive at Solidarity, Dirk Herman. Dirk, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and shine. Thank you. Now, Dirk, what are your demands? Well, we have a very simple demand, and that is that this specific employee shared ownership scheme must be inclusive of all workers at South Africa, actually managing empowerment in this specific industry. It determines that if it comes to working class workers, they all must be included in shared ownership schemes. So even the charter in South Africa says that then Sassel is in contravention with that charter. So all that we ask is that Sassel must align themselves with the specific charter. We think Sassel simply went too far. If you exclude a specific group of workers from your shared ownership scheme, you'd say that you are not part of, you are not owners of this specific company. And that estranged um, workers huge frustration. They voted 89% in favor of a strike action. So they have a voice that they want to be heard. Now, Sassel says it's trying to address historical inequalities. Is solidarity against transformation? We are not against transformation. The fact of the matter is Sassel has aggressive other transformation programs. They have a, um, a aggressive affirmative action program. They have um, training programs, development programs, bursary programs, etc. So they do a lot to make sure that um, black workers get opportunities, get appointment, get promotion, etc. But if you then have a situation where blue-collar workers are on the same level, then to come and say that a certain group of them now can get shares value at 500,000 rand and the other guy, guy gets nothing, then it um, creates racial tension because the fact is one guy worked there for 40 years and he gets nothing. The other guys work there for three weeks and he gets 500,000 rand. And that divides the working class in two. And we believe workers are workers. And that is the agreement that we had at the negotiations on the mining charter as well. Now, Dirk, do you think that uh, your members getting Kangisa shares will be fair for the previously disadvantaged employees at Sassol? 
we believe that um, it's not necessary to exclude if you empower. Um, the question is, can't we have an inclusive empowerment scheme where everyone can get a benefit? We think it's lazy to say, very simple, that a certain group simply get nothing. We think they, uh, there's definitely more creative methods. Remember, the guys that we talk about here are ordinary blue-collar white workers. It's not managers or rich people or people in um, high positions, etc. They are on exactly the same position than the ordinary black workers on the ground. And that is that creates um, tension. They never were part of any share scheme in Sassel, etc. What happens now is everyone in Sassel will have um, shares. The white guys there on the top will have shares. The managers have share programs. The black workers have share programs. But suddenly the white workers are the only ones in the whole company that have no share. And that leads to frustration. Now, has Solidarity approached um, Sassel executives and Sassel um, management with regards to your concerns before go- embarking on the strike? We were in the process of Sassel for longer than a year. We started about a year ago with um, discussions, with negotiations, with mediations. Um, in the last year, I wrote to the two CEOs. We've met them um, a bit earlier this year. It was a long, long process trying to get a solution. Sasso made a hard decision, and the reason for that is they want um, um, uh, empowerment points on a scorecard. It's a commercial uh, motivation, not a moral mot- motivation. They want to make sure that these uh, scores are protected and they are prepared to estrange a certain part of their employees just to get scores. So the fact is the value of those ordinary workers are now measured and with a calculator and then um, uh, uh, according to race. Now, Dirk, are you satisfied with the first day of uh, your strike that took place yesterday? We are very satisfied. Well, the fact is that Sasol planned for the maintenance program for for a couple of years now, and that also now come um, um, uh, come down to a three-week period. And um, and this maintenance program is very sensitive at this stage. And um, um, our members are the skilled guys. Um, they have technical expertise. They are the artisans, etc. And, um, and every hour that that program is delayed, it costs Sasol um, literally millions of rands. They are now one and a half days behind schedule. That shows that there's a huge impact on Sasol, and we believe that they will not have a choice later on this week as to come to the negotiation table that we, so that we can get a solution. And the solution can be an example for South Africa. That can be something that South Africa um, can get hope from if we can, on that level, get something that, um, that finds a balance between um, transformation and exclusion. Now, there have been reports in, on, in, in the media that uh, your strategy is uh, going through all the different sections or different regions of Cecil and uh, just switching off here and there. Now, Cecil says they've activated contingency measures. And uh, as you say, you carry a lot of, well, almost the... Uh, the majority of the expertise of the company. Do you think that they will feel the impact of a strike? We have no doubt that they already feel uh, feel the impact. We've seen the figures yesterday. So um, there's a lot of pressure on them in the past. In the past, if there were any problems in Sasol, we were the contingency plan. And um, they don't have us at this stage. 
So we know that there's a lot of pressure at this stage. And, uh, well, we will see that um, that will build up. We plan for three weeks um, that we have a specific strategy, very delicate strategy. We plan it day for day, unit for unit, for three weeks um, to put pressure on, on, on Sasol. Can you give us more details on what your plan is and approach going forward? We um, started yesterday, of course, like I said, with uh, what we call go slow and picket actions, etc. It will build up to Wednesday. Wednesday we have memorandums all over South Africa that we will hand over. And then it all builds up to Thursday. Thursday will be a full-blown strike. Then everyone will come out. And thereafter we continue with the focus focuses on the units that must be um, started after, uh, uh, after the maintenance program of SASOL. And we know exactly which one must start when. So we just focus on that specific unit at a specific time. So it's about the three weeks planning that we have. Like SASOL in detail planned their maintenance program, we planned our strike action in detail. So we know exactly when let's will go out, etc. So that is a bit of a battle of knowledge as well. And we think that Sasa will see the power of knowledge. Now, Dirk, very quickly, just in wrapping up, how many workers do you represent at Sasol? It's 6,300 um, workers. The majority of the workers are white, but we have uh, uh, quite a large number of black workers as well. And the interesting thing is that they um, all support the strike. They, they they say that it's about right and wrong. It's not necessarily about black and white. Dirk, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. I appreciate That is Dirk Herman, Chief Executive at South Africa's trade union Solidarity, joining us on the line. In South Africa, as public hearings based on written submissions on the expropriation of land without compensation start today, Mercedes percent recaps how the debate unfolded and where it's leading. It was on the 27th of February this year when an EFF motion to expropriate land without compensation was debated in the National Assembly. The debate happened on the same day when the founding father of the PAC, Robert Sobukwe, died 40 years ago. Leading the debate was EFF leader Julius Malema. Fellow South Africans, almost 400 years ago, a criminal by the name of Jan van Riebeck landed in our native land and declared an already occupied land by the native population as a no-man's land. Van Riebeck, the first descendant of the Dutch to arrive in the Cape, will later lead a full-blown colonial genocide anti-black land dispossession criminal project. The ANC amended the EFF motion in the House. It was passed with over 240 votes. All parties except the DA, COPE, FF Plus and ACDP supported the motion. These were the results as announced by House Chairperson Cedric Frolik. Those in favor 241, those against 83, There's no abstentions and the motion as amended is therefore agreed to. The PAC, which has one seat in Parliament, was not in the House when the motion was debated and passed. This is because PAC leader Lutando Mbinda was in the Eastern Cape to attend various activities for the 40th commemoration of Sobukwe, which happened on the same day. Mbinda said the passing of the resolution on land expropriation was the best honor for the PAC founding father. So uh, there was no other way to honor him 
at least uh, what a better way, I mean, or the best way of honoring the, the, the defier of the undefiable. So as PAC, we were really, really very, very happy. In their draft resolution, the EFF wanted an ad hoc committee to be established to review Section 25 of the Constitution, but the ANC amended the motion to allow the Constitutional Review Committee to carry out the task. Public hearings were held in all nine provinces. Most of those who participated in the provincial hearings wanted Section 25 of the Constitution to be amended to allow expropriation of land without compensation. The last public hearings took place at Goodwood in Cape Town on the 4th of August. Some of those who participated in the Cape Town leg of public hearings expressed different views. I am totally against land grab. That is totally illegal and we all know historically for the fact that when the white people came to the Cape, there were no cell phones, there was no Kentucky, no shopping centres, no farms, nothing. There was bungee, bushes, and wild animals. Now when we say the constitution must be changed, we don't say white people will have no land. Why must settler farms in Stellenbosch have 13 farms and we have no land? Why must Anton Johann Rupert have land the size of two Cassis and I have no land? Poor black people, we have not nothing. The land belongs to the white people in the Western Cape. The DA municipality where I'm serving, every time we are sitting for council meetings, we are selling land left, right and center. By the time Section 25 is amended, there will be no land left for the poor people. The debate has always been heated even during President Cyril Ramaphosa's maiden oral reply session as president in March. The president and DA leader Musi Maimani had different views on the land question. There is a deep injustice in South Africa as far as land ownership and certainly amongst black South Africans. Mm. The pace has been profoundly slow. And I think former President Kalama Motlante in his high-level panel review agrees. But he cites the fact that the problem is not the constitution. The problem is corruption, an incapable state, a lack of budget, and your government. Honorable Maimani, I've been having a number of discussions with a number of people, some of them who are property owners, who have said, Mr. President, we think that land is a huge problem in our country. And we are prepared to join you in resolving this problem. A number of farmers have said, yes, what this calls for is that we should give access to South Africans who do not have land. The public debate continues. Public hearings based on written submissions will start in Parliament today. The Constitutional Review Committee has until the end of September to report back to the National Assembly and the NCOP on whether Section 25 of the Constitution should be amended to expropriate land without compensation or not. That report by Mercedes Percent. Our economics update up next with Tarisa Luhoku.
Good morning. China has vowed to pursue its relations with Africa on win-win cooperation and common development. The world's second largest economy has been accused of recolonizing the African continent. But speaking at the opening of the third forum of China-Africa cooperation in Beijing, Chinese President Xi Jinping said his country's relations with Africa is not based on what Beijing stands to gain. For China, we are always Africa's good friend, good partner, and good brother. No one could undermine the great unity between the Chinese people and the African people. China believes that the sure way to boost China-Africa cooperation is for both sides to leverage its respective strength. It is for China to complement Africa's development through China's own growth, and it is for both China and Africa to pursue win-win cooperation and common development. In doing so, China follows the principle of uh, giving more and taking less, giving before taking, and giving without asking for return. Meanwhile, China says it prides itself in fulfilling all its promises it made to Africa in the last three years. In 2015, China pledged development projects worth 60 billion U.S. dollars. Speaking through an interpreter, Chinese President Xi Jinping said all projects were delivered on time as promised. Xi has again announced other developmental projects worth 60 billion dollars for the continent in the next three years and beyond. China will, on the basis of the 10 cooperation plans already adopted, launch eight major initiatives in close collaboration with African countries in the next three years. We've decided to open a China-Africa Economic and Trade Expo in China and will build and upgrade a number of economic and trade cooperation zones in Africa. We will support Africa in achieving general food security by 2030, provide 1 billion RMB of emergency humanitarian food assistance to African countries affected by natural disasters. Kenya's biggest telecoms operator, Safaricom, faces a fine of around 4.5 million U.S. dollars for failing to connect calls made to smaller firms. The Communications Authority of Kenya has imposed a fine on Safaricom, part owned by South Africa's Vodacom and Britain's Vodacom of 0.2% of its gross revenue for the last financial year, equivalent to $4.5 million. Safaricom denies the accusations and has secured a temporary suspension of the fine pending a hearing before an industry tribunal. South Africa's trade union Solidarity says its members at the petrochemicals firm Sasol will embark on a three-week strike starting on Thursday. This after they embarked on a go-slow protest on Monday over a share scheme that the firm has exclusively offered to black stuff. South African companies are required to meet quotas on black ownership, employment and procurement as part of a drive to reverse decades of exclusion under apartheid. Meeting the rules makes a company more likely to qualify for government tenders. Solidarity has been waging a challenge against the racial quotas in the workplace. It lodged a complaint against the policy with the United Nations Human Rights Commission in 2016. Economist Yashudan Naidu. 
Thassol's previous scheme failed, but the share scheme is fully dependent on the share price. So employees can own shares, but when those shares are fully encumbered, they get debt against those shares. And over 10 years, the debt rolls up and the share price isn't enough to redeem those, that debt plus leave them with some residual value. What they're left with is 10 years and no actual value. So this is Sassel's attempt to right this issue and uh, actually create some value for their black employers. I think Solidarity is a union which has shown its colors many times in regards to what side of the fence it sits on. So I mean, it's not surprising that they would say that uh, they would go on strike. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.60 Botswana Pula. It's at 10.27 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, as the U.S. dollar is trading at 4.9 Brazilian Rail, at 67.90 Russian Ruble, and at 17.93 Indian Rupee. 6.83 Chinese Yuan, 14.80 to the South African Rand. 77 pence to the British Pound, 86 cents to the Euro. Gold is trading at $1,199. Platinum $788 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $78.07 a barrel. From an African perspective, Channel Africa. A sports update up next at Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with athletics. The International Association of Athletics, the IAAF, has slapped a four-year ban on Zambian athlete Mupopo Gabange for failing a doping test. 26-year-old Mupopo is a former gold medalist at the 2016 African 400-meter women's championship and has represented Zambia at several major international competitions such as the Commonwealth and the All-Africa Games. IAAF conducted a doping test on Mupopo during the London World Championships. But the Zambia Amateur Athletics Association ZAAA president, Elias Mpondela, says the association is yet to be presented with the findings. On the football news, Bafana Bafana head coach Stuart Baxter has called up his son, who is the current goalkeeper coach at Kaiser Chiefs, to replace Andre Arense. Whilst Baxter doesn't see any problem with calling his son to work with him, call of nepotism are already flying on social media, with some seeing this as an opportunity to boost his son's CV. And typical of European arrogance, Baxter says people who know football will understand this. It's not as if I'm roping him in just as an excuse to to have someone I know sitting beside me on the bench. This has been a a decision, and people maybe always will will have opinions, and those opinions don't need to be well-founded. You know, never let... Never let the truth get in the way of a good moan. You know that's uh, that's probably. So I don't expect I don't expect it to be a decision that is attacked by the people that understand football. But does that mean that that it won't be attacked by certain people? Well, it may do. But then again, clocks will come under pressure, and I'll come under pressure, and you, and uh, my wife may come under pressure as well. But because some people will always have an opinion. But I don't. I'd be massively disappointed and, uh, and surprised if people don't see it for actually what it is. It's, the, it's the, the best decision in a very difficult situation. 
Rugby News Springbok assistant coach Matthew Proudfoot says it will be important for the Springboks to get consistency and physicality back into their game. This if they are to bounce back from the defeat against Argentina when they play against Australia in the Kassenlager Rugby Championship test in Brisbane on Saturday. The Wallabies have already lost their two tests in the Rugby Championship against New Zealand, but Proudfoot is expecting the Australians to come out fighting as they too look to bounce back. Two teams uh, looking to bounce back. You know, I think a lot of people have spoken a lot about the Australian performances, and I don't think you get defined by your performances against New Zealand. Um, you know, so I think this game for both both sides is going to be crucial, crucial to see how they respond. And uh, I think it's going to be a really tight game, tight game on the advantage line for the two sides, looking to try and get onto the front foot. Finally, tennis news: five-time champion Roger Federer has crashed out of the U.S. Open fourth round, beaten in four sets by 55th-ranked Australian John Millman. Millman 3-6-7-5-7-6-7-6 victory in his first Grand Slam fourth round match scuppered a blockbuster quarterfinal between Federer and Novak Djokovic. It marked Federer's earliest U.S. Open exit since he failed in straight sets to Tommy Robredo in the fourth round in 2013. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amika na unai. Recapping our top stories of Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawal Forum on China-Africa Cooperation continues in Beijing and the DRC government rejects foreign funding for elections. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magadza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277 Six three double zero double three two seven, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency seven two three zero kilohertz on the forty one meter band to Southern Africa is Olamide with a song title Science Student. <laughs> You know